a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. Oh, we are going to revel in wrong things so hard today. I hope you warmed up a little bit beforehand, because this, this might actually get a little strenuous. Can I start out just by noting that uh, among the people I would least want to be a Supreme Court justice right about now, I don't know if you've heard, but uh, the state of Texas filed an election integrity lawsuit against Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And apparently the suit filed directly to the Supreme Court, because states can do that, asserts that uh, the states conducted their presidential elections in an unconstitutional manner. I think specifically they're, they're calling into question the, uh, the changing of election rules by someone other than the state legislatures. In other words, it was done either through the courts or it was done through executive action, not through the lawmaking bodies of those states. I just was uh, I was listening to my friend Joe Carey, who, uh, as an attorney, was giving a very, very good explanation and background on this issue. And whew, it's a hot potato. I mean, Texas, good for you for, you know, having the guts to step up. They filed it just before midnight last night. I don't know how the Supreme Court will handle it, but and, and I'm not trying to say that, well, this is it. This is it. You know, Biden's going to get ousted here. I don't know what the outcome is going to be. I'm just thinking aloud that it would really stink to be a justice on the Supreme Court right now. Can you imagine the kind of pressure that they would be feeling? I know, you know, the howls of, you know, when when uh, Kavanaugh was was uh, being confirmed as a justice. You know, remember there, there was all the concern over, oh, you know, he's going to overturn Roe v. Wade. And I think we saw some similar hysterics over Amy Comey Barrett. Coney Barrett. Sorry, I don't want to inadvertently associate her with the disgraced FBI director, former FBI director James Comey. But uh, nonetheless, nine people sitting there with a ticking time bomb. No, let me say a ticking hydrogen bomb that uh, is sitting right there in their laps. And they've been asked, could you please do something about this? Not a very enviable place to be. And it's just another layer of intrigue in what has already been a year in which I think we've all had about our fill of interesting, dramatic turns and twists. Here we go again. This could be really fascinating. I don't know if you have some thoughts on it. If you do, call me up 801-331-8113. I don't know enough about constitutional law to sit there and tell you the wherefores and whereuntos and how this is all going to shake out. And maybe it's something the Supreme Court will swat away, or maybe they'll say, well, we're not going to interfere with this election, but from this time forward, no states can, can get away with this. I don't know. But it does raise some interesting possibilities, and, 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 and it makes me just a little nervous at the same time. If for no other reason, what concerns me is... This is this is where the the power grab that's going on right now. And and I'm not saying it's just the Democrats. I'm saying 
Generally, there is a lot of power at stake. And the people who most want to get their hands on it are getting pretty desperate. I mean, they're willing to to bend whatever rules they have to bend to make it happen. And of course, with the compliant media gaslighting us left and right and telling us, no, 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 this is legit. This is legit. I promise you the thing you're going to hear if this lawsuit proceeds in the Supreme Court is you're going to hear that Texas has succeeded in instituting a constitutional crisis. And I'm going to tell you what uh, what my friend Joe Kerry had to say about it. And he says, no, what Texas has done here is has put they have put the Constitution to use as it was intended to keep government within its proper limits and to limit the potential for mischief by those who would uh, discard or ignore those limits. My, my, what exciting times. Let's go to the phone caller. Welcome to the show. Do you ever get the feeling you're being just conditioned year after year? That's what people are doing. I mean, I'm looking at the Brits here, and they're just lining up to take that vaccine. Oh, well, that's, I guess that's as far as what the media is telling us. But, yeah, I just feel like we are just slowly, constantly being conditioned. Like, if we let this go, we deserve everything we get. Yeah, that's I mean, right uh, sad but true. Yeah. Oh, it's 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 true. And, and, and yet, at the same time, look, I'm, I'm all for let's keep the this. Let's keep the system or the uh, the process honest as possible. But I'm also convinced that, Rob, at some level, we've got to pare back the power of politicians by making them irrelevant in as many places as possible. I, I know you I, I know you 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 like that theory and, and I like that theory as well. But the problem is we're constantly participating in the same shenanigans. I mean, let, 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 let me break it down, though. Let me put it this way. Politicians have exactly as much power over us as you and I agree to give them. In other words, the degree to which you and I are willing to be obedient to whatever it is they write on a piece of paper or dictate from their throne of power, that's how much power they have over us. If we we withdraw that... There's so many different scenarios where you get your... You don't even know you're breaking laws, and you, you, you are, according to what's on paper. Therefore, you find yourself in a predicament if you know, you come across these situations and you are, you know, within, you know, you're, you're, if you're coercing with government, you, you find yourself in these positions. Like, like here, here's a great example. I, I live in Sandy City, right? So I, I got this property outside my property. And it's not mine. I don't take care of it. And, and it's, I'm not supposed to take care of it. It's part of this high-density housing people that they for some reason they've been able to allocate taxpayers property to you know private entities now that's that's what's going on now so i've called up on code enforcement five times at least with these people because it's either the sprinklers are running full bore never stopping or it's the desert trees are dying garbage is in there it just looks like crap right and it's up right up against my house but i when i bought the house that stuff wasn't there okay it was not there it just was blended in with the project. So these people agreed to take the property and also agreed to maintain it. That's including snow removal and, you know, weeding and wood chips and making it look nice all the time consistently, and it doesn't take that much to do. I've called over five years trying to get this. Finally, 
I, I had the code enforcement guy in front of my house today, and, and he's, he actually, like, tried to say something about my park strip that I was out of. I was like, yeah, so mine looks just like the guys across the street. So his is out of, so you're going to write him up too as well? And, and I, I, you know, I've gotten to the point with the, the bosses of, of the city, and I'm just like, when are you guys going to write these guys a citation and make them hold their feet to the fire to the contract that they agreed upon? Because that's what's going on now. I'm stuck here doing the maintenance on these places because I'm getting tired of looking at it. And, you know, you guys are here. You're getting a paycheck. You're, you're, you're always going to work. You're driving around $80,000 trucks. And these people are sitting here getting away with this year after year. When are you going to do your job? Now, That's let, the way you got to talk to people. Let me make sure I understand, though. Are you are you actually calling for more government, whether it's on your neighbor or, you know, by extension over your property? Are you calling for more government interaction in your life? I'm calling for what I'm paying for, for government. What What's already being taken out of my tax dollars where a, a man or a woman has a job, they get a pension plan, they're getting paid health care, and they get vacation time and sick days and all the little hoo-ha parties that they do all day long, and I want my money's worth for what I'm paying for. So, yes, I am calling for somebody to do their job, which I'm paying for. They're on the payroll. So can I go up to these people and ask them to clean the place? Did it already. Personally, went up there several times. Doesn't work. So... There you go. You got the government that's supposed to be doing a job, and they're not. This, see, this is where I, I kind of differ with your ideology of, you know, as much, you know, force, you know, or, or you know, you know, as much. Reduce, power. reduce your government footprint. <laughs> What's that? Reduce your governmental footprint. Really, yeah, that's that's all I'm advocating. But you, but you you can't because you're paying for it. You can reduce the government footprint and not use it. So if, if you weren't paying for it, would you be clamoring for it, though? Would you still be seeking relief from it? I'm just I'm, no, I'm asking no, in sincerity. No, because if, if government wasn't there, okay, to do what they're supposed to be doing, let's just say with the code enforcement thing there. Okay, it gets to where it, it gets to that's, that's where I guess it gets questionable to me, Rob. I don't know that government is supposed to be doing that in the first place. And frankly, I'd be the guy who'd be happy to not be paying government to do a lot of the stuff that it's currently doing and see it uh, taken care of by the private sector. But, uh, you know, sometimes we take the easy way, and that's where a lot of people want to go. Thanks for the call. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Well, this, uh, this leads right into a topic I wanted to, to share with you, an article from Kent McManigal. This is from everythingvoluntary.com. If you haven't visited their website or you haven't signed up for their email, I promise they will drop some very thought-provoking commentaries and, and content into your inbox on a daily basis, and it's, it's very worth your while. I like Kent McManigal because he has a way of just getting right to the heart of the problem. He doesn't dress it up with fancy words or, you know, he doesn't complicate things. He's a very apolitical person who gets what the, the real heart of the matter is. And he says, if there is one message I'd most like to share with you during these times, 
It's that your rights don't depend on the opinions of politicians. He says whatever mandates are issued, whatever legislation is imposed, your natural human rights remain completely unchanged. Having a right simply means no one can have a right to stop you. Now put this in the context of some of the stuff we have put up with or we have chosen to go along with in this past year. He asks, do you have the right to earn money or did you have the right to earn money last year? Well, guess what? You still do. Did you have the right to run your business last year? You have the same right today. And no, this right doesn't depend on a business license either. Do you have or did you have the right to gather with friends and family to celebrate Thanksgiving last year? You still have the right to do so. His point is nothing a politician says can ever change any of this. Now, while politicians may have the power to violate your rights, they don't have the power to alter your rights with legislation or mandates, not even a little. Your rights remain exactly the same no matter what politicians claim. So here's what it comes down to. Rights can either be respected or violated. There is no third option. To regulate, limit, ration, license, or criminalize a right is to violate it. And the person who violates a right for any reason is the bad guy, without exception, no matter what excuse they use. Nothing justifies violating human rights. Now, the freedom to exercise your rights is liberty, and no one has the right to violate anyone's liberty. This right doesn't exist. It's not a right that can be created. And I love this little bit of clarification here. Liberty is not whatever politicians say it is or wish you would believe. Liberty is simply freedom tempered with responsibility. And politicians don't even get the option of defining your responsibility. It's your life, your rights, your liberty. Take it back. Say enough and mean it. Now, he says, some people will be angry with me because they imagine that I minimize the opinion of experts. Well, he says, I can't stop you from listening to supposed experts, nor from believing them. In fact, listen to them all you want. They still have no right to impose their opinions on you with threats of government violence. And if you help them violate the natural rights of your friends and neighbors, you are as bad as they are. Now, he says, I assume you would never do this. You care about the rights of others and will support them as they live in liberty, even when they go against politicians' wishes. Aren't you thankful your rights don't depend on recognition by politicians? Ken McManigal says, I certainly am. This is what I'm getting at when I say it's a mindset. If you want to be a free man or a free woman, you just have to make your mind up that uh, my freedom matters enough to me that I'm going to exercise it. It's like any right. If that, look, if I learned anything from watching uh, the, the Bundy trial from within the courtroom three years ago... I learned that uh, rights are only yours insofar as you are willing to claim them, use them, and defend them. And it was Ryan Bundy who drove that home over and over again. And by the way, the jury was like nodding their heads going, "Uh uh-huh, I see what you mean. Now, that doesn't mean that all you have to do is say, well, I claim my right and everything is going to go swimmingly. It sure didn't for the Bundys. They paid a very high price. But in the end... They prevailed because they claimed their rights, they used their rights, they defended their rights. 
and even what uh, appeared to be the mightiest government on earth with virtually unlimited resources and manpower and, uh, and you know, uh, vindictiveness <laughs> to come after them and try to punish them could not prevail. Oh, they made them suffer. But rights are one of those things that sometimes you have to be willing to suffer for, at least in the short term. You and I have a lot more power over what's happening in our lives than we'd like to think. And I'm, you, you understand, I hope, I pray you understand. I'm not advocating go be a lawless individual. What I'm saying instead is be the kind of individual who can distinguish between this is a good law and I would agree to live under such a law versus that is a bad law. That is an abuse of government power or that is an abrogation of my rights that I did not consent to. And therefore, I withdraw my consent and I won't live under it. Now, I know there are people who equate obedience with being a good citizen. I outgrew that a long time ago. And I think one of the strongest influences in in shaping my thinking as to why obedience does not make you a good person. In fact, obedience is the the reason why the, the worst atrocities in the world ever took place. It wasn't because Hitler went out there and with his own gun and his own hand killed six million people or more. It's not because Stalin killed tens of millions of people by his own hand. The only way that they were able to do the horrific things that they were responsible for was because they convinced enough people to consent and to go along with them. And this is right because it's legal and therefore we have a right to do this. And enough people obeyed, whether it was out of a sense of good citizenship or just out of a sense of, well, it's wrong, you know, to go against the law. So one of those strong influences for me was Sophie Scholl one of the founding members of the White Rose Society. I don't know how to communicate how illegal, how dangerously, I mean like deadly illegal it was to criticize their government at the time that she and other members of the White Rose were printing and distributing leaflets, urging, begging their fellow Germans, please stop supporting this madman. Please stop supporting his total war effort. But they knew that they were putting their lives on the line. But they believed in something strong enough and they withdrew their consent. And even though they had to operate in secrecy, they still did what they felt was the right thing to do. And when they were caught, even when Sophie was given an out by the Gestapo interrogator, Inspector Moore, who was was, uh, questioning her, he told her, your brother's taking full responsibility. He says you knew nothing about this and that you were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Is that true? She could have said yes. She could have said, yeah, you know, I just I had no idea. And they would have sent her on her way. But faced with that moment of truth. She said instead, and this is directly from the transcripts taken by the the Gestapo during her interrogation. I'm glad I did it. And I would do it again. That's what courage looks like. Now, she was given a show trial along with her brother and their friend, Christoph Probst. They were convicted. They were executed in a very short matter of time. Within days, they they had all been beheaded. 
you may say, well, that just proves then it's a, it's a failure. Why would anybody want to do something like that? And I submit that if you have to ask that question, you probably haven't uh, given serious thought to what you care about enough or you care deeply enough for that you would be willing to risk some part of yourself, whether it's your good name, your job, relationships, status, maybe even your life. I mean, none of us wants to find ourselves standing at that crossroads, right? But I'm sure grateful for the people who did and who had the kind of character that they could answer with confidence. Yes, I'm willing to make this stand no matter what the cost is. They are heroes in every sense of the word. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I hesitated about bringing this up, but I'm going to do it just because because it's a thing. And I don't mean to exclude anybody, but, uh, you know, look, we talk a lot about mask wearing and, and, and I understand it is one of the big dividing issues of our time. I, I even people who I love dearly and even the people who I, I count as some of my closest friends, we don't see necessarily eye to eye on this. And that's OK. It's not a matter of, well, but they have to agree or we are mortal enemies. It's more a matter of, OK, we're, we're having a hard time coming to agreement on this issue. But uh, yesterday, the waters became muddied a little bit more. And let me just give you some background here. Um, I live in Utah. And in Utah, um, the, the LDS religion has been a predominant force in the state for a long, long time. Okay? Mormon culture is all over the state of Utah. There's a reason why when you go to Salt Lake City, you know, the whole city, the downtown area is kind of centered around Temple Square. And it's uh, very beautiful, one of my favorite places to go, especially in the Christmas time when there's lights everywhere. But there has been a lot of, uh, a lot of, I'm going to use the word controversy, but it's just, um, there's been some friction over the sense of, well, what about masks? And, and part of it goes back to earlier this year, I think it was back in August or July, where certain um, regional or, or statewide leaders within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints made the comment that, uh, well, we think people should wear masks and we encourage you to wear masks because that is the Christ-like thing to do or that is, that is how you show your love for your neighbor. And, uh, and a lot of people, myself included, are like, oh boy. Not because we're thinking, oh, they've been misled and the New World Order has co-opted them and they're using them to you know, push their agenda. Not that at all. It's more like, oh boy, because the self-righteous, and I'm sorry to to be so blunt, but in Utah Mormon culture, um, self-righteousness is an art form. It has to be seen to be believed. And those who have grown up around it or lived within it long enough, you kind of get a little bit blind to it. It's like, it it reminds me of when when I went to visit my kids in Alaska four years ago, and uh, was uh, the first time I stepped up on the docks where they were working, I was like, whoa. Oh, man, that smell of fish and and low tide is overpowering. But they said, I'll relax within a couple of days. You're going to get nose blind. You won't even notice it. And you know what? They were right. Okay, it's the same kind of thing in this cultural sense. You become familiar with it to the point where you don't even notice that, uh, oh, yeah, that's just kind of one of those quirky things that that happens. And you, you 
when when I talk about that self righteousness, it's the idea that uh, you know that uh, I'm I'm going to show this outward display of my obedience and my rectitude, and and I'm going to chasten you, brother or sister, that you seem to be falling short. What a shame! What a shame! that you would choose damnation over embracing the point of view that I know is right. Now, yes, I'm exaggerating somewhat, but I'm telling you, it's a real attitude. And if you haven't seen it, count yourself lucky, but it happens. And so when, when Elder Dale Renland, who is one of the apostles in the LDS Church, uh, made a statement yesterday about, uh, you know, well, it was a video that was recorded actually before he was diagnosed with uh, COVID-19 about how wearing a mask shows that you care about the most vulnerable among us and that it's a, it's an act of Christ-like love for a person to wear the face mask. I know there were a lot of us, myself included, who kind of looked at one another and went, oh, boy. The self-righteous folks are going to turn this up to 11. This is not, by the way, a criticism of Elder Renland. This is how some people will take that as permission to go forth and, and be a Pharisee. And boy, some of them got the message. The posts started on Facebook almost immediately. My friend's daughter wrote a response to what, uh, what she was thinking about this. And, and I, again, I'm not trying to exclude people who are either outside of the LDS church or have no particular, um, you know, tradition of faith. But you have to understand when, when you define your life by spiritual truths, and I count myself as one of those people who there are spiritual truths that very definitely guide how I live my life. It's hard to find yourself at odds with people who ostensibly should be on the same page with you, members of, you know, a a common faith, members of your congregation and so forth. So this is what my friend's daughter wrote. Her name is Kira Wilcox. She is a brilliant writer. And she wrote this essay called Tough Enough to be Kind. Now, maybe I'm the only one who needs to hear this, but I know that I've got some friends who are very much not down with wearing masks, whether it's because the government told you to or because some Pharisee came along and not Elder Rentland, but uh, but one of the self-appointed Pharisees who came along and and said, you know, you have to do this because someone in authority has said so. She says, I've never been on the outskirts of the church, but I found myself there today. She says, I've never had a major doctrinal wrestle or issue with any policy or practice of the church. And then it happened. One statement and the tables turned. She said, suddenly I was an outsider. Now, she says, let me just preface this by saying it's scary to share opinions on social media anymore. There's so much contention, division and opportunity for offense. And she says, my intention is not to add to the clamor, but to navigate it. So I plead with you, if my post or opinions offend you, please give me grace, forgiveness and tolerance. I'm just sharing my person, my super personal thoughts in case anyone else felt the same way. She said it happened when Elder Rendlin posted to announce the phased reopening of select temples. They've been closed due to COVID concerns, just so you understand. In his post, he said, wearing a face covering is a sign of Christ-like love for our brothers and sisters. Now, she says, for many reasons, I do not agree with this statement. I was shocked, confused, and angry when I read those words. And she says, I wondered if there was a place for me in the church anymore. I wondered if my beliefs were too different or if the church was led by real apostles, or if they'd all been deceived. So she says, with shattered trust, I went to my studio to work, and while I worked, I thought and wrestled, and I listened to you too, like I often do when I'm feeling a lot of emotions. 
And she said a line from the, uh, the song, There is Light, stood out to me. The lyrics asked, are you tough enough to be kind? And she said, my mind turned to the members on social media who already had begun to share Elder Renlund's statement like a sword, using it to judge and persecute those in the church with different beliefs and opinions. She says, I reflected on the hundreds of comments I'd read on the original post. And so often it seems to me that the people who crusade the loudest for others to be Christ-like are the ones sitting smugly behind masks, refusing to show Christ-like love or tolerance toward anyone with a different view. And then she says, I wondered, am I the same? Do I judge them? Or am I tough enough to make my own choices for myself and my family and allow others the sacred space to do what they believe is right, free from my judgment? Let that sink in for just a second. Do you hear what she's asking? Do I judge other people or am I tough enough to make my own choices for myself and my family and allow others the sacred space to do what they believe is right, free from my judgment. She says, while I wrestled with this, I had four distinct thoughts. Number one, do we really believe in grace? Do we believe that by our own best efforts, striving to do what we feel is right, that God will bless us and make up the difference? Or do we believe that God's grace only works with 100% compliance? Is there room for both sides to exist? And when it really comes down to it, is our trust in God or in the arm of the flesh? Number two, she says, if my best efforts to explain myself and stand up for what I believe is right is mocked or I'm labeled as not Christ-like, can I simply choose to be kind in return? And not just refrain from saying unkind things, but to completely refrain from thinking them as well. Number three, do I realize that living in this time with all of its turmoil, contention, and divisive social media presents quite possibly the greatest opportunity to develop more compassion and kindness than at any other time in the history of the world. And fourth, and she says this was the most comforting one, when she was a student at BYU, she says, we learned how to discern and answer the question, what is doctrine? We were taught that the parameters for qualifying doctrine from church leaders was, is it found in the standard works, the scriptures? Is it an official proclamation or declaration with the united voice of the prophet and apostles? And is it taught repeatedly in general conference or found in the church handbooks? So in summary, she says a single statement from a church leader, even an apostle, does not constitute doctrine. Elder Renlund's statement was his perspective on the wearing of masks in an attempt to encourage members to wear them. His statement was an answer to prayers for many and yet a stumbling block for many others. And she says, I fall into that latter category and that's okay. She said, after pondering this, I had a warm feeling of peace that there's still a place for me in this church, even when my views don't align, don't align rather, or I sin differently. God still wants me there. I'm not Christ-like in a mask-wearing way, but I am in many other ways, or at least I try hard to be. I don't have to leave the church because I don't equate wearing a mask with being Christ-like. And she says, but isn't that the wonder of it all? That Christ taught us to love our enemies? No, really, let that sink in. Our enemies, people who actively seek our harm, people who on one hand threaten health by not wearing masks and on the other threaten the fabric of our liberty by wearing them. Both, re both sides have reason to point at the other and cry enemy. But she says Christ taught us to do good and love those people who choose not to be Christ-like. I'll have this posted in the show notes. It's an essay worth your time. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. And again, I am not trying to alienate anybody who is not of the LDS faith. I just see this, uh, I see this divide playing out. I've, I've actually uh, found myself in the thick of it a time or two myself. And it's, it's tough when a spiritual leader says something that does not align with your deepest convictions. Does that mean that they are wrong and you are right or the or vice versa? You are wrong and they are right. Or is there room in this world for people to reasonably disagree on matters that are not a matter of church doctrine? And still be able to find peace. I shared this essay and it is in the show notes. This is from Kira Wilcox. Tough enough to be kind. And her point I think is extremely well taken. She talks about how we were, we were counseled. Those people who follow Jesus were told by the master. Love your enemies. And she says maybe that's the bigger challenge. It's easy to love people when they behave and think like we wish that they would, but it's difficult to love them when they don't. And I've seen a lot of people struggling with this right now. So Kira has some wisdom worth considering here. She says, if you felt it all like I did, you're not alone. God still cares about your concerns and your struggles. My hope is that we don't use Elder Renlund's statement as a sword to judge and divide our brothers and sisters who have many different concerns and circumstances in their response to COVID. She says, I hope that we're tough enough to be kind, willing to learn how to love like Christ did, and ultimately trust in God's grace to work out those things we cannot. I know this is, I, I'm, I'm swimming in the deep end. I'm dog paddling in circles right now, but... I think this would be very useful information for those who, who might need to hear that kind of message. Anger is not going to get you further. And I don't care if it's with the mask issue. I don't care if it's with politics. There is plenty of anger to go around and enough to spare. We don't need to bring more into the equation. What we need right now is uh, what we need is a good outbreak of CS. Are you familiar with this? Have you heard about this? It's, uh, it's not quite an epidemic but there does seem to be an outbreak of it. Jeff Minnick wrote about this on Intellectual Takeout. And, and I thought this was, this was actually kind of encouraging, even though I'm really not into, you know, things spreading, you know, and CS. Um, you know, maybe this is going to scare some people, too. He says, my daughter's friend, I'll call her Amanda, never wears a mask anywhere. And when the clerk standing outside our local grocery store distributing free masks and hand sanitizer asks if she'd like a mask, Amanda smiles and says, no, thank you. If he asks, are you sure? She nods and says, I don't have to wear a mask. I suffer from CS. The clerk then says, I'm sorry, and waves her inside the store. I guess, you know, CS carries kind of a dire tone. It sounds like some congenital ailment of the, the lungs or the heart, maybe some affliction derived from asbestos or smoking. Now, Jeff Minnick says, I laughed when I first heard this story, but then I got to thinking. Why is it I have so detested masks ever since the first day that the governor mandated them here in Virginia? If masks protect others, shouldn't I be happy to cover my mouth and nose? When I'm in my Honda Civic, I practice defensive driving. I don't tailgate. I double-check my rearview mirror before changing lanes. If another driver behaves rudely or foolishly, I try to keep my cool. So why am I having such difficulty showing people similar courtesies when it comes to wearing a mask? And then he lists out a number of reasons from least to most important. I don't know. Maybe you'll relate to some of these. Comfort. 
That's a big one. He says, the masks I wear irritate my cheeks and chin and also stifle my breathing. After spending just 15 minutes masked in the grocery store, I start feeling like a caged animal as I pull and tug at the corners, seeking air and relief from discomfort. Then there's the matter of glasses. Wearing a mask fogs up my glasses, in turn demonstrating that the mask is not working. My breath is escaping around the corners. Then he talks about ineffective protection. Physicians and scientists have argued about whether masks even work. The thousands who signed the Great Barrington Declaration, including prominent epidemiologists, argue against lockdowns and for herd immunity instead, encouraging the healthy and young to resume their normal lives. This is how they put it. Those who are not vulnerable should immediately be allowed to resume life as normal. Simple hygiene measures such as hand washing and staying home when sick should be practiced by everyone to reduce the herd immunity threshold. Schools and universities should be open for in-person teaching. Extracurricular activities such as sports should be resumed. End quote. So young, low-risk adults should work normally rather than from home. Jeff Minnick says restaurants and other businesses should open. Arts, music, sport, and other cultural activities should resume. And though the signers make no mention of masks, he says you can assume by their use of normally that they're not fans. Then there's the matter of dehumanization. He says masks reduce our ability to read the thoughts and emotions of others. They hide a part of our personality and our individuality. And then there's also the attack on individual responsibility. By issuing edicts rather than guidelines, governors are treating their constituents like children. Because so many of us fear COVID-19 in part, thanks to the constant drumbeat from the mainstream media, We've let them get away with this ploy. How is it that any governor has the power to issue such directives for such an extended period of time? And finally, there is the attack on liberty and the advent of totalitarian directives. The Biden team has already promised a nationwide mandate on mask wearing and possibly severe lockdowns on businesses and schools. After eight months and counting of this pandemic, some of our governors and mayors have conditioned us to obedience So the odds are many Americans will comply with the new batch of edicts. Well, he says that brings in some questions. So suppose in an effort to control global warming, our federal government ordered gas rationing with thermostats lowered in all public places during the winter and raised in the summer. Suppose the government laid down a moratorium on travel ostensibly in the interest of saving fuel. Suppose a COVID-19 vaccine was developed, as seems to have finally happened, and our rulers ordered everyone to take that vaccine, punishing those who refused via a facsimile of China's social credit system, limiting nonconformists' ability to travel, serve in the armed forces, or attend certain schools. And he asks the question, what would we do then? Maybe it's time we all developed a good case of CS. You understand, that's common sense. That's all it is. Common sense. Now, I know I hear people saying, well, if it's so common, why is it such a such a rare thing? I that I can't tell you. I do know we're doing a pretty good job of scaring ourselves to death over COVID. I'll include this in the show notes. This is an article from uh, Keith Gandahl. This was from the American Institute for Economic Research about how fear is one of the key components of an unhealthy life. And if, if you think about this, it makes sense. I mean, you, you, uh, 
you experience stress when you're under fear. That lowers your immune system's ability to fight disease. If you really want to strengthen your immunity and avoid infection, really not living in a state of fear is probably a good idea. I have a good friend whose mother-in-law passed away some years ago, and uh, it's really sad because she was getting sick and they couldn't figure out what it was that was making her sick. But she had lived in fear for many, many years that she would that she would get cancer. And ultimately, the day came where she was sick enough. She went to the doctor. They diagnosed her with a very, very late stage colon cancer. And uh, literally within days, she had passed away. And my friend commented to me about uh, it's how odd it was that the thing she feared most was the thing that killed her in the end. Now, look, I'm not trying to make some kind of medical connection here. So if you only think about good things, you know, that's that's all that will ever happen to you. But I think there is something to be said. For the power that our thoughts have, whether consciously or subconsciously, I think they can have an influence If you tell yourself over and over multiple times a day, I'm sick as a dog, I'm sick as a dog. Would you really be surprised if you don't go around feeling sick as a dog? I don't know. I'm not saying that daily affirmations should necessarily take the place of, you know, medicine. But I look at the way that we are being um, informed about COVID-19 and it's almost all scary. It's terrifying. Can you think of the last time that the news media reported something that didn't have a tinge of fear, if not an outright, you know, bucket of fear dumped over the top of it and running down the sides? I still don't understand all of the incentives for why they they report it the way that they do. But uh, that fear and that constant diet of fear is something that a lot of people have grown addicted to. They can't imagine life without it. Yeah, it tastes bitter, but man, they're back to pull on the bottle another couple of times because they got to get their fix. All I can suggest is let's watch where our thoughts go. And if there are loftier places where we can focus them, we might want to give that a try. Couldn't hurt. This is The Brian Hyde Show.